0: So Daniel chapter 6 is where I want to take you. And the background to the book of Daniel is that the Jewish people in the southern part of the state have been taken into captivity in Babylon in 586 BC. In 722 BC, some 150 years earlier, the northern 10 tribes had already been taken into Assyria. But this is the second exile that happened to God's covenant people. And they find themselves in exile. And as we've been looking at this, this great book, there's six chapters from chapter two to chapter seven, written in Aramaic, written for the intention of speaking to both Jews and Gentiles alike. So the Babylonians could read this, these six chapters as well as the Jews. The Jews could read the first chapter and the last several. And all of these chapters together remind us time and time again of God's sovereign hand over the rulers of the world and how God's people should respond when, they're, when the pressure has been turned up. When you find yourself in trials or tribulations, this book helps us to know how to respond. And as we've said before, While Daniel is an incredible role model worth emulating, the message of the book is not a horizontal one. It's not dare to be Daniel. The message of the book is a vertical one. It's dare to worship Daniel's God and be obedient and courageous to Daniel's God as he was. Daniel has been serving as a technocrat, an employee in the courts of the kings of Babylon. He serves faithfully under Nebuchadnezzar. He served faithfully under Belshazzar, his grandson. And now the kingdom has switched hands and it's being run by a different people group called the Medes and the Persians. And there's a man by the name of Darius who is ruling the nation. So this is the third monarch. There's going to be four ultimately that Daniel will serve under. And under each of them, he he has tried, he has tested, but he remains faithful, and he is recognized by the various kings as a man who is very much committed to his God. And this chapter is no different. The the lesson we're going to learn here is that while the righteous will suffer, God will redeem. The righteous will suffer. Expect, newsflash, if you're a new believer, expect to suffer. Like, I thought I signed up for this thing because my suffering has been too intense and I thought if I'm a Christian that everything's gonna be hunky-dory. No, no. If you're a believer in God, you will suffer. Some people will suffer unto death. Some people will suffer in other ways, but you will suffer. And yet God will always redeem the circumstances of life for the benefit of his people. God blesses the courageous. You can take that to the bank. So several lessons coming out of that overarching lesson are as follows. Sometimes righteousness is rewarded. The Bible says in verse one, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, 120 kind of mini governors to be throughout the whole kingdom. So he's dividing up his realm into 120 provinces essentially. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one. Surprise, surprise. Daniel's elevated, then he shrinks into the shadows, then he's elevated, then he shrinks into the shadows, then he's elevated once again, depending on what is going on politically in the kingdom. This is a high point. He's elevated. It goes on to say to whom those satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished, surprise, surprise, above all. The word all means all. He's above them all. There's nobody that is distinguished to the degree that Daniel is. All the high officials and satraps. Why? Because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So excellent spirit, being read by the Babylonians, it's like, okay, he's special and connected to his God, we know through the eyes of faith what that means. He was a diehard, courageous servant of the true king of kings and lord of lords. So there's a bit of a lesson here. There's several lessons, but one of the lessons later at the gates is that when you serve well, when you possess insight, when you are a principled person, at times you will be elevated. So there will be blessing Not for everyone in this world, but there will be blessing and there will be a measure of recognition afforded to those that take a principled stand against wickedness. God often blesses us in the here and now. So perhaps one of the things you can be considering is that if you've taken a few punches in the face for Christ, if you've been pushed around a little bit for Jesus, if you've experienced some trials and tribulations, We don't know what the future holds, but at least be prepared for the potential of expanded influence. Because throughout history, from the time of Daniel, even before and after, God has often seen fit to raise up faithful, God-fearing warriors to exercise influence over culture. So that's not everybody's calling but it certainly happened to Daniel. Daniel's promoted, but here's what you need to know in case you're super excited about the potential of a promotion. When you are promoted, the target that's on your back grows to be extremely large. (laughs) So if you're influencing one and only one person, you only have one and only one chance to potentially be ridiculed, falsely maligned, thrown under the bus. But if you happen to influence thousands and thousands of people, expect to be attacked even more. A lot of people have this weird notion, this carnal notion, they, they want to rise, you know, rise to power and fame because that's where, that's where life's going to be awesome. Well, if the Lord makes you famous, if the Lord makes you a prime minister, a king, a premier, a well-known person, and you're able to use that for God's honor and glory, that's great. But know this, the more people know your name, the more people are gonna wanna tear a strip off you. So on one hand, Daniel is elevated, but the more influence he wields, the more he is attacked. So sometimes the righteous are rewarded, as Daniel was, but the two-edged sword is sometimes righteousness opens us up to persecution, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. And they looked and they looked and they looked and they checked out his social media accounts and they perused through his text messages and they hacked his emails and they interviewed all of his friends. But guess what? They couldn't find anything. It said they they could find no ground for complaint or any fault Because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Now, that's from a horizontal perspective. It's not saying that he was without sin. But from a horizontal perspective, he was above reproach. They couldn't find dirt on him. So what do they do? Walk away and say, okay, well, maybe we should just let this guy lead because clearly he's a man of integrity and wisdom, and that's what everybody wants, and that's how nations are blessed. When wise, courageous men lead... No, then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel. Listen to this very carefully. Unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So what do they do? Hmm. Instead of subjecting themselves to God's law, they outlaw God's law. That's what tyrants do. They trap you. They outlaw God's law. Some do it willfully and knowingly and strategically. Some are just influenced by demons and devils. But we've seen this pattern take place time and time again throughout human history when God's people are under an extra measure of trial. If they can't take us down by embarrassing us or by exposing our hypocrisy, they outlaw God's law. They trap you. They put you in an impossible situation, humanly, whereby you have a choice. Fail God and survive, or obey God and die. So they come up with a scheme, a plan. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, by the way, listen to the lies. So first of all, they they patronized the king. Oh king Darius live forever. And then the lie. The first word is a lie. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed. No they're not. Daniel didn't agree. We don't know what's going on with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego right now, but I can guarantee if they were functioning in one of these roles they didn't agree. But they lie that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition, meaning praise, to any God or man, but it's just limited, just limited. It makes it more palatable when, when laws are passed that are just temporary. It's just temporary, just for a little while. For 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. They're quoting the law of man as part of their manipulative strategy. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. Why do you think he signed the document? Pride? Think that had anything to do with it? Everybody gets to pray to him for 30 days. This is a manipulative tactic of the devil as well. When he wants to get you to do his bidding, he massages your ego. He offers you the kingdoms of the world. Remember, remember the devil, didn't. he didn't learn his lesson come the time of Christ, because remember when Christ was taken into the wilderness and tempted by the devil? Same strategy. We're going to offer you the kingdoms of the world. We're going to offer you power and influence if you just... So they appeal to his pride. And there's probably some politicking going on as well, because... He didn't have a chance to interview all 120 plus the three governors, 123 individuals. He takes them at their word. Oh, everybody is in agreement with this. So even though I'm the king, it's probably not politically apropos for me to reject what these individuals who sort of keep me in power in part want. I don't want to step on the toes of my cabinet. I don't want my proverbial experts To be ticked off at my decision. So I'm pointing these things out so that you can see, I don't think I need to over preach it, but so that you can see the patterns of behavior that existed in the sixth century BC that are still in effect today. People are people are people. Culture changes, language changes, food choices change, dress changes, but people are people are people. And this is why it's important to be a student of history because if you're a student of history, you can more or less predict what's going to happen next. You don't even have to have read the chapter. You know where this is going to go. There's predictable patterns here. The king's pride gets in the way. The wicked fluff and puff him up. By the way, don't get too flattered by recognition from godless people. Don't get too flattered. There's an agenda attached Don't get too flattered when they vote you into office. Don't get too flattered when they offer you an award. There's generally an agenda attached. The third teachable point is that the righteous don't hide from suffering. The righteous don't hide from suffering. The consequences of obeying God can be very very painful in the human realm, but they don't really matter. We don't want to cast our pearls before swine. We don't want to unnecessarily give opportunity to evildoers to attack God's people, but we don't calculate, oh man, like, is this worth obeying God? Look at the potential consequences of this. Could you actually think of any greater consequence than the one that was about to be dispensed to Daniel? So Daniel could have said, you know what? I'm going to lay low for 30 days. I'm literally going to stay home and stay safe. Just for 30 days. I'm going to close the blinds. I'm going to worship in secret. After all, the the law isn't written in such a way that it's going to be enforced so that I I can't worship. I can still pray, but I just won't. I'm going to go underground for a little bit. I'm not I'm going to be I'm going to be private about this. When Daniel knew that the document, this is verse 10 had been signed, he went into his house. Okay, so he's retreating. No. Where he had windows in his upper chamber, you can see through windows. They would have been without glass, by the way. Open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God Oh, he's putting on a show. No, listen, listen to what it says next. As he had done previously. This was his routine. He prayed publicly three times a day. That was his routine. And then this edict is issued that threatens his life and he just keeps doing it. He's not trying to poke the bear. He's not trying to be a a bad boy, a rebel. But evidently, he understood that Romans 13 doesn't mean absolute submission to the state. I know Romans 13 wasn't written yet, but the principle of it. That we must obey God first rather than man. So he practices his faith publicly, Not to put on a show, but because that's what he'd always done. Now, I suppose he could have rationalized, well, I can still obey the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, in a sense, and save my neck by praying in my closet. Or like we might do at the dinner table in a restaurant, when we don't want people to really know we're Christians, and we just kind of pray with our eyes open really quietly and sort of rubbing our heads and maybe with the menu in front of our face because we don't really want people to know that we're weirdo Christians. I sense there's some conviction in the room. <laughs> <laughs> or he could have said, well, it's, it's only temporary or whatever. There could have been any number of excuses that he came up with. By the way, my wife was reading Exodus this week, and she, she made this interesting comment. And I started thinking about this a little bit. She, she mentioned the incidents where Moses is trying to negotiate with Pharaoh, let my people go. And you know, there's multiple events, there's multiple encounters where Moses is like Pharaoh, let my people go. God says we have to go. We have to go into the wilderness and worship. These are God's terms. This is the way God wants us to worship. And Moses is at times like No Way Jose, and other times he's like negotiating. He's always trying to negotiate the terms of worship. God's like, get your people and go out into the wilderness and worship me. And in the eighth chapter, verse 25, Pharaoh's like, well, okay, but you can worship, but worship in Egypt. It's like, well, why not? Why not? Why pick a fight with Pharaoh? I mean, at the end of the day, God wants worship. We can give him worship. So just worship in Egypt. Why not save everybody the the conflict, the potential consequences? And I I started thinking about that, and I kind of thumbed through these accounts this week, and I noticed there's actually several instances where Pharaoh tries to negotiate the terms of worship with Moses. Not just on that one occasion. In chapter 3, verse 25, Pharaoh says, Well, I will let you go to sacrifice the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. So now he's negotiating the distance of worship. In chapter 10, verse 8, Go and serve the Lord your God, but which ones are going to go? So now he's trying to negotiate the numbers of worship. In chapter 10, verse 24, then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Your little ones may also go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. So time and time again, he's like, okay, you can worship, but, but I want to say in the how, the who, and the where. Does that sound familiar? Well, we can still worship, but we have to be on Zoom. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is that the state, the godless state, will do everything within its power and try to negotiate with you so they still have their finger on the terms of your worship. And if you give it to them, are they going to say, well, we're satisfied? No, they'll want more and more and more. So a principled person, a pragmatic person might say, look, why pick a fight? Because we know where this leads. Because we've studied history. If we as a church decide that we can stay truthful, faithful to the word of God and modify our approach without violating God's word, that's our prerogative. It's not the prerogative of the state to dictate the terms of worship. Not in war and not in plague. Plague. And if we give that to them, folks, wake up. A precedent is set that will be used against the church in the future. I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet, but I did say something a couple years ago that's coming true. All of the rationale applied to the plague we just went through is now being shifted over to the climate agenda. The same reasons, the same rationale. Public safety. While you can still travel, you just have to do it differently. You have to limit it. Love your neighbor. Obey the king. We actually have a king again now, by the way. I think he's my 15th cousin. So I'm hoping I might have some influence over him. It's like, why not comply? Why not compromise? I mean, let's not be legalistic. Does does gather together actually mean gather together physically or could it be digitally? It's it's so crazy to think about this. You you know what the Bible says. Go into the world, preach the gospel, baptize people. Folks, it sounds like I'm making something up. Over the past couple years, we saw churches take that and revert both to digital baptisms in California, whereby you get your avatar and the pastor shows up as an avatar and there's a digital baptism in virtual reality world. And whereby even some Baptist churches that love baptism so much they put Baptist in their name, did Zoom baptisms. You just baptize yourself in your bathtub at home and they Zoom it into the church. Well, it's it's compromised. We don't want to be legalistic. This is the rationale. Well, you can guess what happens next. The unrighteous are easily deceived, and Darius here finds himself trapped because he's not principled like Daniel. It's so much easier to be a principled person. It's so much easier. Instead of calculating the outcomes and trying to figure out how to get what you want with with, while dancing with the political establishment. It's so much simpler just to be principled. Life, just black and white. If God says it, you do it. If he says don't do it, don't do it. Keep everything simple. But not Darius. So he finds himself trapped. It says, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. I doubt they were just walking by. Oh, there's Daniel. They had, they had a stakeout going on. <laughs> and then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions? And the king's like gulp, pulling on his collar. And he said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, and I bet you the color just went out of his face who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. Notice that they, they don't actually refer to him as one of the governors of the land. They don't refer to him by his, his office. They refer to him as an exile by, his, by referring to his former life. They don't give him the respect that he's actually due. I think that's Deliberate. O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes petition oh, three times a day. So the satraps, the governors, who are supposed to be helping to govern the nation are the ones that actually rat out the man of righteousness because they want him out of their way. Darius is trapped. And then the king, when he heard these words, which was much distressed, and set his mind to deliver Daniel. So he's trying to think, how can I get how can I get myself out of this? And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king, bunch of weasels, bunch of lowlifes, bunch of snakes in the grass. And they said to the king, know, O king, that this is the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So the king, this could never happen in our context, of course, Because we have too many checks and balances. We have a threefold branch of government. We have an executive branch, a legislative branch, and we have a judiciary, which are all supposed to keep people in check. And we have a king that's supposed to guard our constitution through the governor general or provincially through the lieutenant general, lieutenant governor general, so that we got all the checks and balances in place. So this could never happen here, of course, tongue in cheek. But The king is manipulated by his technocrats, his experts. They become the de facto rulers of the kingdom. Because the king, instead of being principled and keeping the law in accordance with God's law, not to suggest they ever really did a good job of that in Babylon, he's manipulated. So the king commands, he he doesn't have a choice unless he's going to be tossed out of the kingdom, that Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. So yes, she participates in the the evil. It's like, well, I don't want to risk my neck. So Daniel, I guess you're going, going into the lion's den. I don't like it. I know it's wrong. I know I've been trapped. I wish I had more insight, but I'm not risking my neck So cat food you become. And the king declared to Daniel, of course, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. It actually reminds me of several occasions on a much lesser level when I was given these $100,000 fines and threatened with a year in jail. And the police officers would come and they'd say, hey, between you and I, I hope you get off because I agree with you. I hope you get off, but here's your ticket anyway. It's like, I know what I'm doing is immoral, but I'm going to give you a ticket anyway. Happens time and time again in history. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. It's almost reminiscent of the garden tomb, where as a messianic figure of sorts, for all intents and purposes, he's dead and he's going to stay dead. When God removed the tomb and our resurrected Christ came out, it wasn't the first time he'd rescued someone in a tomb-like place. So the stone was brought and laid in the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Who of us would ever want to find ourselves in a situation like that? Where having been granted authority, having been granted influence, we buckle to manipulation and then we're laying awake at night wondering what in the world did I get myself into? You know how you can avoid that? How do you avoid entrapment, folks? How do you avoid being painted into a corner How do you avoid being manipulated? Very simply, here's here's the answer to that you do the right things without overcalculating the outcomes, period. You let God be God, you do the right thing, and you don't try to manipulate or coerce or chew your fingernails down to the bone thinking, well, what? what might happen next? What might happen to me? Again, I understand there's a, pr- there's a wisdom principle and that you don't want to cast your pearls before swine. If a burglar's knocking on your door, you don't say, hey, I want to avoid a problem. I'll just open the door and you know here's my, my wealth. You take advantage of law, closed curtains, weaponry, whatever you can to protect yourself. So you don't cast your pearls before swine. It's like, Come on in, take our church away. Come on in, plunder God's people. Well, it's not that, but at the same time, we don't overcalculate the outcomes. If God says no, He means no. If God says go, He means go. Whatever God says, we do. And we don't try to out overly outmaneuver evil. We resist evil. We speak out against evil, but we don't try to dance a dance with evil folks. Don't get on the ballroom floor and dance a dance with evil. Ultimately, what happens is we are protected. So the righteous will suffer. And this, this, this uh, story, this narrative, which has been told time and time again, you know the outcome, but the, the reality is it doesn't always happen this way. Sometimes you get eaten. But in this context, while the righteous suffer, ultimately, ultimately they are protected by God. We've heard this testified to already today. So Daniel's thrown into a lion's den. There's multiple lions in there. How big is a lion? Lions can grow upwards of 800 pounds. That's a big animal. They have a crush capacity of over 600 pounds per square inch. They can jump 35 feet. This isn't your cat, Tommy. The worst he can give you is allergies. These are lions. How is Daniel going to survive this? What's going to happen? Well, the whole night goes by, and then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions, and he came near the den where Daniel was, and he cried out in a tone of anguish, and the king declared to Daniel, oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? That is an incredible question, because it's not like, are you okay? We're you able to climb out. We're you able to pet them, and they didn't bother biting you. In his question, it's all attributed to God's grace. So it sets the reader up for a a reminder that God is the one that had saved and rescued Daniel. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, which he'd done previously in the fiery furnace, and shut the lion's mouths that they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. And by the way, folks, if you are blameless before God, you are biblically blameless before the state. The state might declare you guilty of something, but if the state declares you guilty of something that God does not declare you guilty of, you're not guilty before God. So in a properly functioning society, if you're innocent before God, you're innocent before the state. In a dysfunctional society, you can be innocent before God but guilty before the state because the state's laws don't always reflect God's laws. I hope you understand that. Then the king, this is verse uh, 23. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Again, it's all vertical. It's all God, it's all God. It's not dare to be Daniel. Daniel was awesome. Daniel wrestled lions. It's God rescued Daniel. And then the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought And cast into the lion's den, by the way, they, their children, and their wives. Evidently, the king, being a pagan king, had not read the Deuteronomy law, which forbids a child from being put to death for the sins of their fathers or a father for the sins of the child, but that's what happens here. They had this view of corporate solidarity. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones to pieces, which shows these were not passive lions. These were aggressive lions. So what's, what happens next? God is glorified on a national level. Really? That can happen? God can like that be glorified in a national level when principled people stand against unrighteousness? Can that happen? Or do we need 150 years for that to happen? No, it can happen like that. Just like that. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. The exact opposite of the previous one. For he is a living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, which is true. And his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. You know what's fascinating about this? We know it didn't stick long-term. Because without conversion, nations always revert. But for a period of time, there was light in Babylon. God's laws were acknowledged, God's supremacy was acknowledged, and God was being publicly worshiped. And it all started with one man a slave who was captured in his homeland taken away, could have rationalized, why would you let me go through this, Lord? Why are you allowing me to suffer? Why am I going through trial and tribulation? Why am I being persecuted? But this is an individual that said, no matter what happens, I will obey my God. And there's national blessing that flows from this. It's a fascinating thing to see the faith of one multiplied to the faith of tens of Thousands. But it's happened repeatedly in history. And yet today, oh, us of little faith, most of us don't believe that could happen. Now, History goes like this. Some people say like, well, why do you bother fighting when you know where this is ultimately leading? Because I want one of these to result as a result of my life and your life. There's highs and there's lows. There's highs and there's lows. In the end, there's a reason why God's going to deal with the world in judgment. Like, oh, no, no, it's not going to happen. For sure, Jesus is coming back in my lifetime. For sure, we're done. We're done. We're done. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe there's a few more of these ahead for us. But even if there's not, we do the right thing, even if there's not. And we do it because our eyes are fixed on God. Why is it so hard for Christians in the moment to believe that God can work a miracle and revive a nation? He can. There's no question about it. He can. It's easy to revert to a we're done mindset, but he can, folks. And while we always want to live... As if the end is very, very soon, let's maintain our resolve to the end. Don't step off the battlefield. Oh, Our troops are thinning out. Don't step off the battlefield. But there's not very many people standing with me. Oh, well, if there's only one of you, do not step off the battlefield. Fight to the end. And God will empower you to do so. Look what it says in verse 28. So then Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and then the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So he's going to serve under yet a fourth king as I've mentioned earlier. Now, here's the thing. We should rejoice in the winds, but never let your guard down. Daniel wasn't like, whew, well, that was the end of that. We got the fiery furnace thing going on. We got the lion's den. We're good to go. The nation's been revived. No, it would plummet again. So let's just say in a very short period of time, let's say that this fall and this winter is not the same as the last two. We're like, whew, that was all over. I'm glad it only lasted for two years. We can go back to our normal, to our mediocre Christianity. Is that what we're gonna do? That wouldn't be wise. We need to learn the lessons that we've learned over the past two years and apply them tenaciously to every adversary that we experience in the future. Never let your guard down. Even if you, you feel the pressures off a little bit, you've been elevated once again. You got your job back. You got your peace back. You got your money back. You got your freedom of worship back. You got your freedom of speech back. Even if you get all that back, don't let your guard down. <laughs> don't let your guard down. Continue to be a principled person through the highs and the lows and allow God to work his good work through you for his honor and for his glory. So be encouraged and be challenged by these words and if necessary be rebuked by them and allow God to work out his plan and purposes for you.